Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto seven years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the January 13th, 2023 episode of Unchained. Did you know that Unchained offers a daily digest of the top stories in crypto? To stay up to date on everything going on in the world of Web3, visit unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. With the Crypto.com app, you can buy, earn, and spend crypto in one place. Download and get $25 with the code LAURA, link in the description. Today's guest is Kareem Dandashi, Portfolio Manager at XBTO Group. Welcome, Kareem. Hi, Laura. Thank you for having me. There's been quite the ongoing feud between Gemini and crypto lender Genesis, as well as its parent company, DCG. Just to give some background for people who haven't been following this, although we have covered it on the show, Gemini has a program called Earn that has been offering yields to its customers. And in order to earn that return, it's been lending those assets to Genesis. But because of the numerous bankruptcies that are happening, Genesis is having, at minimum, liquidity issues and quite possibly and likely insolvency issues. So it cannot pay back Gemini Earn customers. Last week, Cameron Winklevoss sent a public letter to Barry Silbert, the head of DCG, giving him a deadline of January 8th, which was Sunday, to publicly commit to working together to solve this problem. The deadline came and went, and Cameron just sent another letter. So Kareem, can you tell us what it is that he said and why this letter was significant? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very interesting because this letter, unlike the first, is very pointed. Um, it's some big allegations in there in terms of what's been going on at DCG and Genesis. And one thing that's very interesting in particular is, um, I think, within the first line of, of the letter, I, I, it, he almost directly states fraud uh, as being uh, kind of the root cause of all of this. You know, from my perspective, I try not to think about it from that standpoint and rather kind of look at what has gone wrong and what are the issues that Genesis and DCG currently face. And I think the reality is that, you know, the legal process will, will kind of ensue and ultimately that's where we'll get more clarity. But without a doubt, um, you know, what's been put forth to uh, the DCG board is, uh, is pretty pointed. And, and what I found more interesting is, uh, is Barry's response. Okay. And before we get to Barry's response, I just wanted to clarify when you said that the legal process is going to bring more clarity, what kind of legal process are you referring to? Well, it's clear that at this point there is, you know, lawsuits ongoing and, and there's a lot of concerns over what's gone on at DCG and Genesis. And I think the reality is that this is only going to get more and more focus over the next you know few weeks and few months as, as the resolution to what's going to happen to Genesis's creditors doesn't get resolved. Um, and I think this really only puts DCG and Genesis in a tougher position to try to figure out their, their situation sooner than later. 
then ultimately becomes a massive burden for all of the customers of Gemini, but all of the other creditors of Genesis as well. All right. So let's now then talk about Barry Silbert's response. What did you find so remarkable about it? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things. And I think the reality is, is that not many people have actually seen the financials behind DCG uh, or Genesis for that matter. Uh, so, you know, any snippet that we get is really revealing. And, you know, I, I think one thing that I found particularly interesting is as you scroll down through that note that he kind of sent to uh, to his board of directors, there's an FAQ section. And that FAQ section outlines a few numbers that uh, I found really interesting. One that we already knew about, obviously, was the $1.1 billion promissory note that DCG wrote to Genesis with a 10-year maturity, which was meant to effectively uh, take on the 3AC liability that Genesis has. One thing that's very important to note about that is that, you know, this is a 10-year asset at this point for Genesis. Um, So it's not a current asset. And another thing that you know we knew prior is that um, DCG has a five hundred million dollar loan from Genesis that is actually due in May in twenty twenty three, which I think uh, a lot of you know analysts or people following this are keeping a close eye on because I think the reality is is that that means some sort of liquidity situation is going to need to resolve itself by then unless Genesis or DCG tries to find another way around this. All right. So earlier when I asked you about what you meant by legal process, you surprisingly didn't mention that you expected that Genesis would file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, but that has been talked about a lot. So why is it that you didn't mention that? It's interesting because I think the reality is is that you're in a situation where DCG has some levers to pull here, but the reality might be that those levers are kind of diminishing. Uh, as time goes by. And so while it is a possibility that Genesis kind of gets forced into chapter 11 in some way or another, it's hard to really say what the ultimate way out is here. Uh, but it's clear that uh, DCG's choices are, 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 are really you know shrinking pretty quickly. One other thing that I wanted to mention about that FAQ section in the DCG shareholder letter was that Silbert also said that the $1.1 billion loan is not callable, correct? which is what a number of people had been concerned about and suggesting that if that were the case, then Genesis going under or filing for Chapter 11 would also cause DCG to as well. So what did that say to you? Because I think a lot of people thought that it was. So what does that mean to you about how it might be structured? Realizing that it's not callable ultimately means that it doesn't fix the liquidity issue at Genesis. The reality is that this is a promissory note. Somebody showed, you know, showed me a, a meme yesterday, which kind of showed uh, a paper napkin saying an IOU of $1.1 billion, which I thought was amusing. But I think the reality is, is that when you realize that Genesis has $3 billion in creditors, and those creditors are all short-term creditors who, who effectively are asking for their money back, then the reality is that that asset of $1.1 billion, which you know, is a 10-year asset at the end of the day for Genesis, can't really be monetized unless DCG puts up the capital. And the fact that there's no call option in there guarantees you the fact that this is a long-duration asset and nothing less. Okay, yeah. And just to make clear for people, um, the amount that the Gemini earn customers is uh, are owed is $900 million. So 
that would obviously be an amount of money that would cover that. So one other thing that I wanted to ask about was Cameron Winklevoss laid out a number of allegations that he was calling accounting fraud. And I wondered how credible you thought the claims in his letter were. I mean, I think the reality is, is that if anything is actually, if anything that's longer than a year is actually listed as current on the balance sheet, then that is problematic without a question. I'm not an accountant, so I don't really want to comment on what the legal consequences of that would be. However, what I will say is that, you know, as a risk manager and somebody who's kind of worked in Fixicum for a long time, asset liability matching is a big thing. And and that has big implications from that regard. And it's pretty clear at this point that, you know, that hole cannot currently be filled because that promissory note is a 10-year promissory note and not and then not anything shorter than that. If I can add to that, you know, I, I think it's worth noting that we know that DCG has been trying to uh, to sell off some of their assets. And I, I think it's worth thinking about how, you know, what does that really mean? Part of that could really mean that they're conscious that they might have to plug a hole and they might need to make those, you know, that payback that $1.1 billion sooner than later or, or actually monetize, for example, that loss from 3AC, right, by covering it up with other assets and liquidity. Now, I think the reality is, is that we're going to be in a position where DCG and Genesis are going to have to, you know, empty their pockets and see what really makes sense in terms of plugging that hole. But being in this situation as it is right now with creditors kind of sitting and waiting is not very sustainable. And the, further, the longer this goes on, it's going to become worse. All right. So in a moment, we're going to unpack a few more of the details around this really sticky situation. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Join over 50 million people using Crypto.com, one of the easiest places to buy, earn and spend over 250 cryptocurrencies. Spend your crypto anywhere using the Crypto.com Visa card. Get up to 5% cash back instantly. Plus, 100% rebates for your Netflix and Spotify subscriptions and zero annual fees. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Back to my conversation with Kareem. So another thing which you kind of alluded to, but I want to unpack it a little bit more, is this terminology of current. Because both Cameron and Barry Silver have been using it in potentially different ways. Uh, I'm just going to quote from the letter that Cameron Winklevoss sent He says, first, as a matter of generally accepted accounting principles and common understanding, a current asset refers to cash, cash equivalents, or other assets that can be exchanged into cash within one year. A promissory note with a principal repayment due in 10 years 
falls outside the definition of a current asset by a country mile. Now, you might have seen also that after you know, we saw then that Silver responded with the letter which said that the promissory note was not callable. Ryan Selkis of Masari posited a theory that Silver might be using a different de- definition of current and said that you can use the word current also to say like this borrower is meeting all payments on its loans. Although, as Ram Alawali pointed out, in this case, there's only one payment, which will be the one in 2032. So is do you think that that's what's going on here? And if so, is that kind of the obfuscation that Cameron Winklevoss is talking about? I agree with Cameron in regards to how in accounting practices, current means something that's within a year. I, from, you know, I've reread uh, the tweets that uh, Barry has put out. And at least the way I interpret it, I, I do think that what he's trying to state is that DCG is current, which basically means he's, the loan is performing. But I mean, I think it's pretty clear that this has, you know, various interpretations. And, and I don't think Ram is necessarily wrong. Um, and I just think here, just a matter of how you interpret what, what's being said. But the way I looked at it is, you know, all he was trying to really uh, communicate was that DCG is not currently late on any payments due to Genesis and basically said that DCG currently is fine. Oh, okay. So he's not saying that that should be counted as a current asset on Genesis's books. I would not, I would not interpret it that way. Uh, at least, at least the way I, I kind of look at it. But, um, I think the reality is, is that anything on Twitter can be kind of misconstrued in different ways, but I would imagine that Barry's also advised not to put out something that would be uh, misleading. And, and I think that would definitely be misleading because there's nothing about a 10 year promissory note that makes it current. Okay. Okay. So it seems like he's using a different definition. I think we're nitpicking here to be, to be, to be honest. And, uh, that's really it. But, but I mean, don't you think that that's exactly what's going on behind the scenes before they post all of these, that the lawyers are combing over everything? And I mean, I, I feel like parsing the language is probably useful. No, I, 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 think you're, I think you're absolutely right. It's hard to really gauge some of the motivations and how people are thinking about it. I'm just kind of giving kind of the way I would look at it as somebody who's kind of worked in loans before is that using the terminology current on, on loans is 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 uh is fairly common in terms of interpreting that uh the, the loan has no late payments and uh, the the borrower is currently you know not in default for example right right but but you also agreed about Cameron's definition of current Correct. asset so so that then supports Ryan's theory Ryan Selkis's theory that they're using this Correct. word current in two different ways okay So at this point, what questions do you have for DCG or Barry Silbert or Genesis? Like, what do you think people don't yet know that would help determine either where to lay the blame or how this situation could potentially be resolved or how it might eventually be resolved? Of course, I'd like to see, I'd like to, uh, to ask DCG for some sort of plan between the two entities, DCG and, and Genesis as to how they look to fill these liquidity gaps. Because the reality is, is that we have an idea of what the assets are. We know what the liabilities are. 
We also know that those liabilities are going out the door. So the question is that your asset base, how do you monetize it? How do you monetize it so that you can pay back your creditors or at least come to an agreement with your creditors? And I think that's something that's really important. And it's important to bear in mind that these are intercompany loans. So the reality is that when we're talking about Genesis, we kind of end up talking about DCG because this promissory note, you know, I think, you know, while it does, it serves a purpose, the reality is, is that in a situation, you know, what's materialized over the last few months, that no longer cuts it, right? Uh, it, it, it was meant to kind of cover a hole. Um, and over the long run be repaid. But in under circumstance in which you have liabilities going out the door, you have to be in a situation where you can monetize your assets so that you can cover those liabilities. All right. Well, who knows how all of that will play out. But uh, another wild card here is that Bloomberg reported that federal prosecutors in the Eastern District of New York, as well as the Securities and Exchange Commission, are investigating the transfers between DCG and a subsidiary that people are positing is probably Genesis and, and also looking into what it is that investors were told about that, those transactions. DCG says they don't know anything about this, but I was wondering what you think um, investigators would be looking for if, if that is the case. I think it's the goal here would probably be to understand to what degree the arm's length, arm's length, I say, is that you know the nature of the promissory note is really conducted in, right? To what extent was Barry, for example, directly involved in, you know, constructing that loan, that promissory note to Genesis, because I, I think ultimately that becomes a potential issue. It's also important to kind of note that when you kind of zoom out a little bit, this starts to look pretty ugly, right? We're talking Grayscale, another subsidiary of uh, DCG, who obviously has GBTC, uh, which is kind of their their, their big product and, and one of the most important revenue lines for DCG and its subsidiaries, you know, one that's garnered tons of attention, 3AC was involved, ultimately got liquidated. DCG has now a relatively large stake or 11% stake in GBTC. And it's kind of worth noting that this is their most valuable asset as, you know, a, you know, empire, if you want to call it that. So I think the reality is, is that you're in a position where the intercompany kind of relationships start to look fairly shady. And, and I think it's pretty standard for regulators to look into this stuff. Now, it's worth noting that kind of when you look at traditional finance, there is tense, there needs to be kind of an arm's length nature and the way that companies deal with themselves, even between subsidiaries. And that and that's going to be uh, that's going to be a sticking point here. And I think that's actually a lesson that we're probably that we can take away from in 2022. And what kinds of terms on that promissory note would kind of meet the standard of arm's length and what kind of terms and conditions would not? Sure. I mean, you know, the one that really sticks out to me is uh, the interest rate on the loan. The interest rate was deemed 1%. Now, if I were to just look at DCG as a venture capital firm that has kind of, you know, exposure everywhere, quite a bit of concentration in terms of its exposures, especially into crypto, right? And then look at, for example, other crypto firms that do have bonds outstanding, one thing is clear is that 1% is not really the appropriate rate to quantify the, the credit risk behind DCG, especially 10 years out. So that's something that I would look into to, to kind of question because I have a hard time believing that 1% was really the, the right place to price this. But then again, from a legal perspective, I'm not sure exactly what those rules would be in terms of what defines arm's length or not. 
So as you alluded earlier, Genesis owes creditors more than $3 billion, and DCG is exploring selling some assets from its venture portfolio to raise money. Do you think that strategy could be successful and get them out of this pickle in time? Yes, I do think that that is it, it is potential. It is a potential solution. Uh, what I want, I want to caveat that, right? I, I think it's worth noting that a lot of their assets are venture capital investments, which at some point are marked at a certain valuation. But it's very possible, and in fact, probably likely that those valuations are not you know marked to market currently. And uh, it's also worth noting that. You know, typically a market when they know a participant's in trouble and has to sell, the market's not going to be very kind in terms of giving you the valuations you're looking for. So, you know, I think the fear, and this is something you might have brought up at the very beginning of this conversation, is that, you know, liquidity issue, but could very well end up being a, a bigger issue, solvency issue at that. And But do you also think that they could sell the venture investments in time to raise the amount of money they would need? It's uh, It's definitely possible. I mean, I think, you know, it's important to note that obviously we have the May maturity coming. Uh, so that's only a few months away. So I would imagine that if they're going to get it done, it needs to be sooner than later. And to be frank with you, I would have liked to have seen this in December. Uh, I have an idea in my head as to how this gets resolved for DCG and Genesis. But you know what? I think the truth is, is that that's something that, you know, Barrier DCG doesn't necessarily want to go on with or doesn't necessarily want to admit the situation they're currently in, which I think ultimately only risks harming them over the next few months. And when you say that you have an idea of how this works out, is that selling the venture investments or, or what is it? Yes, par- partially selling the venture investments. I mean, it's worth noting that obviously they own 11% of GBTC. GBTC trades at a 40% discount. In my mind, this whole thing has amounted to one very big GBTC discount trade, which ultimately has ended up back in the hands of the parent of the issuer of GBTC, um, which I think, you know, if I were to kind of interpret it my own way, I would look at it as he's made a levered bet on his own product getting converted to an ETF. And um, it's, it's unfortunate where we are right now, but um uh, I, I just doesn't look very good. You know, amidst all this, what do you think is likely to happen to Grayscale? Very difficult to say, but I, I think the reality is is that when you have a parent who who's clearly in some sort of liquidity situation, uh, especially if the Genesis issues don't get resolved soon, then I think the reality is you have to think the regulators are going to start asking questions and. And, and I think at that point, you know, it's probably in the best interest of the shareholders to ultimately have a management company who is considered healthy and can take on the responsibility of managing GBTC. But I mean, the reality is, is that it's kind of unclear how this plays out from here. Um, it's also unclear because, you know, we know that the SEC is looking into DCG and Genesis, but, you know, we don't have further details to that. Okay. Yeah. One other thing that doesn't look very good is that um, two board members who are quite prominent, Glenn Hutchins and Larry Summers, left, and that was actually um, back in November. So, uh, you know, again, not not really promising developments for DCG. Um, I guess the only other thing that I'd like to ask you about is that there was another company, Bitvavo, that revealed that DCG had offered to pay it at least seventy percent of the. $300 million uh, that it gave, that it loaned to Genesis. 
But Bitvavot refused that offer, saying that Genesis does have the ability to repay the total amount within the agreed-upon period. So what do you think of that development? I think it's interesting. Um, I think the reality is DCG might be trying to work with creditors who could uh, be willing to work with them and accept some sort of discount uh, to, the old, to, to the overall borrowings. I think the reality is, is that it's not really panning out properly. And what Bivavo is probably trying to state here is that there's assets there. You just need to do what you need to do to make them liquid to pay us back in full. And I think that's really the, the sticking point. And the fact that Bivavo has rejected that kind of means, I think, broadly means that creditors are, are not going to really be budging at this point. Because I think most, you know, most who follow the crypto space pretty closely, it's hard to ignore how messy this situation has gotten. And uh, I think ultimately a lot of this ends up falling on DCG, um, which is which is really unfortunate. So just to draw out something that you said earlier, it seems like your basic recommendation to DCG would be what to sell the 11% of GPTC that they own in order to recoup whatever they could from that and and sell some venture investments and then use all that to pay. The, anyway, keep, you you fill it in. I, I'm not yeah, going to. Of course. No, I mean, the, the problem is that there's no good recommendation because the reality is, is that had you risk managed yourself properly, you would have never put yourself in this situation. And, and that's the really tough part. Now, if you want to tell me how, if you want to ask me, how do you get this resolved quickly? Yes, you got to sell what you what you can sell which I would suggest is probably some of your more valuable assets that, if anything, bury probably treasures. But then if anything as well, I, the way I kind of looked at it and the math that I kind of did in November suggested that if there were a redemption mechanism that were enabled for GBTC, then you would see a large increase in the asset value of their GBTC holdings, which are obviously 11% of all GBTC outstanding, which would fill a big chunk of that hole. Now it's worth noting, you know, DCG Grayscale make a lot of money off those fees, uh, which I believe are currently at two percent, and that is kind of the prized possession for the DCG Empire. And so, giving that up is tough, and I think that's really a situation. I've kind of taken the stance, and I've spoken to Ram about this over the last few months, and I've spoken to plenty of people about this. Is that that the best solution here is probably to end this GBTC trade? by ultimately allowing redemptions to happen and kind of get this saga over with. Because we know that this has been going on for the last, call it year, uh, and you know, 3AC was involved. We know all our hedge funds were involved. We know Genesis got tied up. I think the reality is that this saga just needs to end. Wow. Okay. Well, we will see what they end up doing. Thanks so much for explaining it all on Unchained. Of course. Thank you very much for having me. Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. SEC charges Genesis and Gemini with offering unregistered securities. After wrapping the interview with Kareem, news broke that the SEC charged both Genesis and Gemini with offering unregistered securities to Gemini Earn customers. The complaint alleges that the depositors in the Gemini Earn program lent their crypto to Genesis, while Gemini acted as an agent facilitating the transaction 
and taking a fee as high as 4.29% from the returns that Genesis paid out. Meanwhile, the SEC says Genesis used its discretion to generate interest for Gemini Earn customers. In the complaint, the SEC seeks permanent injunctive relief, disgorgement, prejudgment interest, and civil penalties against both Genesis and Gemini. SBF launches a substack while under house arrest. Sam Bankman-Fried, the disgraced founder of crypto exchange FTX, published a blog post on his new substack newsletter titled FTX Pre-Mortem Overview, in which he gave his perspective on the collapse of the company and sister trading firm Alameda Research. He named three reasons for the collapse of FTX, the huge amount of illiquid assets on Alameda's balance sheet, Alameda's failure to hedge against the bear market, also known as poor risk management, and Alameda's targeted crash precipitated by the CEO of Binance, Changpeng Zhao, or CZ. As for how all these issues at Alameda caused FTX to go insolvent, he blamed Contagion, quote, similarly to how Three Arrows, etc. ultimately impacted Voyager, Genesis, Celsius, BlockFi, Gemini, and others. Keeping in line with his recent plea in court, SPF maintained his innocence. He said, I didn't steal funds and I certainly didn't stash billions away. He also called it ridiculous that FTX US users haven't recovered their funds yet since, as he claims, the American subsidiary was fully solvent when he left the company. FTX recovers $5 billion in assets. In a court hearing on Wednesday, the liquidators of FTX said they have been able to recover a substantial amount of assets, including cash, liquid cryptocurrencies, and liquid investment securities worth over $5 billion. They added that this sum does not include an additional $425 million worth of crypto held by the Bahamas Securities Commission. Despite this significant recovery, there is still an undisclosed amount of missing assets that are owed to customers. Moreover, this week, the United States Department of Justice took possession of over $456 million worth of Robinhood shares that were owned by Sam Bankman-Fried and Gary Wong, the co-founders of FTX. The shares were confiscated because they are considered assets connected to illegal activities, such as money laundering or violations of wire fraud. In the ongoing bankruptcy case, Judge John Dorsey rejected a request from media organizations and the U.S. government to disclose the list of creditors for FTX, which will remain sealed for another three months. Still, bankruptcy court documents revealed that Tom Brady, New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft's companies, and crypto firms like BlackRock, Coinbase, Lightspeed, Pantera, and the Tezos Foundation are among the stockholders of FTX. Judge Dorsey also received a letter from a group of four U.S. senators who are requesting that an independent examiner be appointed in the bankruptcy case. Additionally, the new management of FTX, led by John Ray III, is requesting the return of charitable funds that were previously donated by Sam Bankman-Fried. For example, Future Fund, FTX's charitable arm, had pledged more than $160 million to over 110 nonprofits. Even though FTX has gone bust, there are as many as 117 parties interested in acquiring some of the exchange's assets, as per a legal document filed in the case. As the proceedings move ahead, more executives are talking to authorities. On Monday, Bloomberg reported that Nishad Singh, the former director of engineering at FTX, met with New York prosecutors to discuss a possible limited immunity deal, 
following allegations of his involvement in fraud at the exchange. What's more, former president of FTX US, Brett Harrison, said he plans to disclose details about the operations of the crypto exchange in time. The CFTC charges Mango Markets Exploiter. In the latest development of the Mango Markets Exploit saga, the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission, or CFTC, filed charges against Avraham or Avi Eisenberg for market manipulation. Eisenberg was arrested in Puerto Rico on December 26th and is now in custody pending a trial. As per the complaint filed on Monday, the regulator alleges that Eisenberg engaged in a manipulative and deceptive scheme to artificially inflate the prices of swaps offered by Mango Markets resulting in the misappropriation of more than $100 million from the platform. The CFTC is seeking civil monetary penalties as well as other forms of relief, such as trading bans, restitution, disgorgement, rescission, and pre- and post-judgment interest. Eisenberg's involvement in exploiting the Mango Markets Protocol is reportedly also being investigated by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Voyager Digital obtains preliminary approval for Binance's $1 billion deal. Bankrupt crypto lender Voyager Digital has been granted initial court approval for its $1 billion sale of assets to Binance. U.S. bankruptcy judge Michael Wiles in New York gave Voyager permission to enter into an asset purchase agreement with the crypto exchange and to hold a vote amongst its creditors on the sale, as per the court filing. If executed, Voyager customers, who have been unable to access their funds since July 2022, will get 51% of their capital back. Voyager filed for bankruptcy in July due to the crypto winter and exposure to the now-collapsed Terra and Three Arrows Capital. Binance US emerged as the ultimate winner of the bid in December last year. However, the deal will not be final until a court hearing is held on March 2nd or shortly thereafter. The deal also has faced opposition from the SEC and, more recently, from Alameda Research. Voyager criticized Alameda and its affiliates for objecting to the acquisition, stating that it is an example of hypocrisy at its finest. On Tuesday, Binance, the world's largest crypto exchange by volume, acknowledged flaws in its system, which left a significant amount of BUSD under-collateralized. The stablecoin, which is designed to be backed one-to-one by the U.S. dollar, was found to be under-collateralized by a minimum of $1 billion, The issue caused the value of BUSD to deviate from its expected value by a significant margin, an event that reportedly occurred at least three times, according to analysts. Layoffs again hit the industry. Coinbase, the largest exchange in the U.S., announced in a blog post that it will be cutting about 25% of its operating expenses, which includes layoffs of about 950 employees, roughly 20% of its workforce. The decision was made in response to the decline in the markets, the broader macroeconomic conditions, as well as the fallout from malpractice in the industry. The CEO of Coinbase, Brian Armstrong, stated that the company is well-capitalized and that the changes will ultimately benefit Coinbase in the long run. Coinbase is downsizing its workforce for the second time in less than a year, following the layoffs of 1,100 people in June 2022. Consensus, one of the biggest players in the Ethereum ecosystem and the developer of a popular Web3 wallet, MetaMask, followed Coinbase's path and announced it was firing 100 employees. Meanwhile, perhaps with the intention of showing more strength than its competitors, Binance CEO Chengping Zhao said the company aims to hire up to 30% more employees in 2023. 
BlockFi executives did not withdraw any crypto after October. Bankrupt crypto lender BlockFi has assured a court that its executives did not withdraw any of their own crypto held on the platform prior to filing for bankruptcy. Lawyers representing BlockFi told the court that this is not a case of insider extraction of value, as seen in Celsius, where management withdrew large amounts of money on the eve of filing for bankruptcy. Joshua Sussberg, a partner at law firm Kirkland & Ellis, which represents both BlockFi and Celsius in their bankruptcy proceedings, noted that $15 million worth of withdrawals made in August by five senior executives at BlockFi were used to settle litigation. Meanwhile, creditors in the bankruptcy proceedings sought to keep their personal information private as they're worried about identity theft and hacking. Speaking of bankrupt crypto lenders, Kyle Davies, co-founder of hedge fund Three Arrows Capital, expressed disappointment among the firm's creditors regarding the ongoing bankruptcy process. According to Davies, the costs associated with the process have been high, causing delays due to disagreements among creditors, and there has been dissatisfaction with the way the assets of the estate are being valued. Now brothers are under investigation by DOJ. The United States Department of Justice is currently investigating the business practices of the Now brothers, Ian and Dylan, who are the founders of Solana-based stablecoin exchange Sabre Labs. The investigation comes after a report from Coindesk in August, which revealed that the brothers had used pseudonyms to create an interconnected system of financial products that artificially inflated the value of their crypto deposits. This manipulation of metrics helped boost the growth of their Solana-based stablecoin project in the midst of the 2021 crypto market peak. DOJ is now looking into the web of crypto projects associated with Sabre, including the DeFi app Sunny Aggregator and the stablecoin project Cashio. The investigation remains ongoing, but Sabre Labs continues to operate. Meanwhile, the Sunny and Cashio projects have been shuttered. El Salvador passes bill to pave the way for issuance of Bitcoin bonds. El Salvador's legislative body has taken a crucial step forward in the issuance of the country's Bitcoin bonds that were supposed to launch early last year. It passed a bill that will establish a legal framework for all digital assets that are not Bitcoin and will open doors for President Nayib Bukele's Bitcoin bonds. The plan entails issuing $1 billion in bonds on Blockstream's Liquid Network and investing half of the funds in Bitcoin and the other half in the infrastructure necessary to develop the Bitcoin industry in El Salvador. The bonds would also offer a 6.5% yield and provide a quick path for investors to acquire citizenship in the country. Withdrawals of staked Ether are closer. After successfully implementing the merge in September last year, the next move for Ethereum is to enable withdrawals of staked Ether, which will occur in a hard fork called Shanghai. This week, developers said they plan to release a public test network for the Shanghai upgrade by the end of February. The upcoming withdrawals caused a wave of optimism for the issuers of Ether liquid staking derivatives. The tokens of Lido and RocketPool have jumped 36% and 27% respectively in the last seven days. Time for fun bits. A song a day man music video. Vertical Dream, which describes itself as an entertainment company exploring the boundaries of creative content and immersive digital experiences, made a music video for a song called GM by Jonathan Mann or Song A Day Man. In case you didn't know, he's been making a song a day for 13 years and now sells them daily as NFTs. The video kicks off with someone moving out of their house because they were wrecked 
and shows a moving truck whose number is 1-800-RUGGED. Terra Luna brought us crashing to the ground, and the Fed raised rates and kicks us when we're down. Go the lyrics. Here's a short snippet. Everyone got hurt in the royalty war. Party split punks, then the punks flip more. Disappointing moon burden as rewards. But we said GM, we said GM. The allowed list metal was all over the place. Taxes made us want to jump in a lake. Beanie came back, but we said no way. And we said Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Kareem and the ongoing situation between Gemini and DCG, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained Premium now includes full transcripts for all shows and exclusive interviews with crypto builders. Go to unchainedcrypto.substack.com to subscribe. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with from Anthony Yoon, Mark Murdoch, Matt Pilchard, Zach Seward, Juan Aranovich, Sam Sriram, Pamela Jimdar, Shashank, and CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.